You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's start talking about, um, you can turn to John chapter 4, but uh, we're going to just uh, do a quick review and then um, I'll try to remember this. I try to get here around 10, but uh, for next week, if you... If we come a little early, I, I'm, I would be interested in um, giving you a little bonus uh, survey, you know, five or ten minutes or something on um, skepticism and how we got to where we are as far as being this sort of strange mixture of postmodernism and skepticism, which might not seem on the surface like uh, they go together, if you know anything about, about them. Uh, I'm not sure I'm doing a very good job of advertising the lecture now. That I think it's <laughs> no, a good way to start. Uh, well, how, bu- how about this? Everybody knows there's a war over definitions. We live in the age of definition wars. I'd like to explain why that is and why it's probably the most important thing happening in the culture and pointing where we're headed. And it's not necessarily great news. Okay. But that doesn't mean God's uh, lost control of it. It just means this is the reality of where we are and where we're headed, probably, historically. So, is that a little better? A little better. Yeah, a little better. Uh, A lot better. There you go. (laughs) Uh, All right. So, uh, we talked last week about uh, the aim of John, uh, which is eternal life. John is interested in uh, persuading the reader that if they believe then uh, they can enter into eternal life. We can, we can have eternal life now. And of course, this then is a direct um, confrontation with skepticism. Skepticism is the antonym of belief, is it not? If you're a skeptic, then that, that means you don't believe. That's what it means to be a skeptic. It's the opposite, for, for pragmatically speaking. Uh, so John is really a direct uh, attack, if you want to say it that way, but not quite the way it sounds. Uh, with our culture and many of its underpinnings are uniquely right now. It's not true that uh, all of the eras of history were as skeptical as our era is. So we're uniquely skeptical. And so um, it's a uniquely applicable book. That's the point. Uh, the, uh, what's John's tactic? Well, it's to tell the truth. How do you get people to believe something? And the answer is to tell the truth, because we, if we judge something to be true, then uh, we come to believe that belief is the natural response to the truth. Uh, it, as soon as you see something is the truth, then belief follows quite easily. Uh, the problem, of course, is that for many, many reasons, we won't go into diverse reasons, uh, the truth is a bit difficult to accept these days. I'll, I would try to explain that next week if we come a little early. If it fails, we'll try the final week and do the same thing. If not, maybe I'll make a YouTube video on it. Then you just watch it while you're taking a bath or something, you know, that's the way to go. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we'll probably do that. Uh, The other thing interesting is that John insists throughout the book that final judgment is based ultimately upon whether somebody rejects the truth or they accept the truth. Uh, The light has come into the world, it says in John 3, and people have preferred 
darkness. They have loved darkness rather than the light. And that statement is preceded by this statement. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world and men love. That is as simple as it gets. I like things really simple. And that's simple. This is the judgment. There's no mystery. There's no secret. When we stand before God, the light has actually come into the world. The question is, do we love the light? Do we believe the light? Do we follow the light? Or do we reject it? Those are the terms of judgment. So we come to this royal uh, official, uh, the story at the end of John 4. And that uh, story is going to illustrate for us an uh, example of how the truth can lead to belief. It's a story uh, that illustrates the very nature of belief. Well, at least that's what I said, didn't I? I've now said that last week. I've said, I said it today. In other words, I'm not just saying that that's one of the themes of the story. I'm just saying there's something you can learn about belief from the story. I would like to say something much bigger, that the story's event originally in the hands of the Savior himself its aim was to teach us about the very nature of belief. What exactly is belief and what isn't it? And that John as a faithful disciple of Jesus, as a recorder of the event, reflecting, of course, upon the event long after the event, you know how when you go to write, most of us try to do a little thinking while we're writing. It's not always the case nowadays. But generally, you try to think a little bit, and then you write. So John had to reflect on these events for many years, actually, before he ever composed them. And so he had a good eye for detecting what the point of the event was, what Jesus did with the event. Because there are a handful of signs throughout the Gospel of John, eight total, nine if you include the resurrection. Sorry for those of you who say there are only seven signs in the Gospel of John, but uh, math is math. It's not fuzzy math, right? Uh, so the uh, comments Jesus makes on different occasions for different signs, of course, vary. He doesn't say the same thing. He doesn't make the same point on each of the occasions of each of the signs. He makes different points because there are different lessons to be gleaned from the different circumstances, some of which he orchestrates, others of which are, are extemporized reactions, like in this case. Okay? So uh, how do we know then, let's at least start there, that uh, the story was intended to illustrate, actually, uh, belief? And here we need only to start with something really, really simple, which is... Uh, the basic, um, they call it framing, I don't want to use that term, uh, the sort of basic story plot. How's that? Okay? Um, in order to get at the story plot, you have to know one thing, and that is where the story begins and where it ends. I hope you don't think John just took one big breath and then just wrote an entire gospel never stopping to think about where one story begins and another one end, and it ends and another one begins. It's obvious he didn't write that way. None of the evangelists did. So it's very helpful to know where a story begins because otherwise you might miss the context of what's going on 
So here it's helpful to have these um, Bibles, right? That have uh, these little headings, you see? Have one right here. Uh, it says, Jesus heals an official son. All right, and that's in verse, that's right at the beginning of verse 46. I don't know if you have one like that right at that verse. I don't know. Maybe you're, it does. Okay, some have it, some probably don't. So that's where, according to them, that's where the story begins. I'm sorry. That's not where the story begins. And therein is the problem with the titled verse. That's why it's nice. You'd think I've invested in the ESV Reader's Edition. I have not. <laughs> but it does help to have a Bible that has no titles sometimes because it gets you thinking a little bit of where this story begins uh, and where it ends a little bit differently. And I don't know about you, but I have a very hard time once I see a title like that, not just accepting it wholesale. And, you know, just It gets locked in. Uh, so let's look at the story uh, going um, way, way back to chapter 2 and verse 13. This is not going to take very long, despite what it sounds like. Chapter 2 and verse uh, 13 says... Uh, the Passover, this, Jesus is, by the way, up in Galilee at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. It says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and he goes to Cana. So he's in Galilee for the wedding. And then in verse, I think it's verse 13, he's, it says after this he went down to uh, Capernaum. Uh, and then the Passover, or that's verse 12, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So you, just a little simple map. Way up here in the north is Galilee, and of course down in the south is Jerusalem. So he's up here in Galilee, some 60 some odd miles away, and then he has to travel down to Jerusalem for the holiday. We travel on occasion for holidays. Travels to the temple to Jerusalem for the holiday. All right, and, uh, and some events happen in Jerusalem, and then it says in chapter 4 and uh, verse uh, 2, I think it's verse 2, he left Judea. Got that? And departed for where? Galilee. Galilee. So he, he started up in Galilee. He came down to Jerusalem for the holiday. And then he went, started to go back to Galilee. But guess what lies in between Jerusalem and Galilee? It's, you don't just go right from Jerusalem to Galilee. There's a land in between. What's the name of it? Samaria. Samaria. And what does it say? But he had to pass through Samaria. But then what happens is he stops in Samaria. He sort of gets stuck. And there's this very famous set of conversations. The woman at the well. The woman at the well. She was a? Samaritan. Samaritan. And then after she leaves, he starts to have a little discussion with the disciples, which gets interrupted by whom? Oh, a little trickier question. By Samaritans. Remember, she goes back into the city and she rouses up the crowds. And they all come out, and they um, have a conversation with Jesus. Is this, uh, it's got to be around verse 40, maybe verse 40, many Samaritans from that town believed. What verse is that? Four, 39 and 40, okay. Many Samaritans from that town believed. Got it? Still talking about the Samaritans. And uh, then it says in verse 43, after the two days... All right. he, he departed, which is where he was going in the first place. 
Uh, all right, you got that? He's now arrived back in Galilee. And what are we told? The Galileans, when he came into Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Why? What does it say? Having seen all he had done where? Down in Jerusalem at the holiday. So you got it? There's Galilee up here. Jesus up in Galilee. He's uh, done the miracle like at the wedding feast at Cana and so on. He comes down to Jerusalem for the holiday. He doesn't come alone, right? There's a ton of Galileans that go down to Jerusalem as well for the holiday. He does a bunch of miracles in Jerusalem. John doesn't tell you any of them, by the way. He just mentions he did a number of signs. He's going to go back up to Galilee, but he has to go through Samaria, so there's this long interlude in Samaria. And then he finally gets back to Galilee, and the Galileans roll out the red carpet. Very excited now to receive him back. This isn't just, you know, this kind of uh, sort of quiet, on the whole, sort of quiet wedding reception miracle that not many people knew about. This is full-blown public miracles in Jerusalem. He's come back to Galilee, and they're all excited. They welcome him. And then it says... So he came again into Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And where is this happening? In Galilee. It's in Galilee. And, uh, he's in Cana. And this royal official has come from Capernaum. But these are just cities in Galilee, of course. Uh, and when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, you see, he's in Galilee, the, uh, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, there's Jesus. His response to the man initially is about belief, isn't it? And its relationship to signs and miracles and so on. The official said to him, Sit, uh, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go your, go, your son lives. If your translation has a future tense, I'm sorry, that's not quite right. <laughs> nice to have one or two other translations around just to make sure you get things right. Uh, or a commentary or something. But it's actually a present tense, go, go your son lives. The man believed the word that, you, oh, the man believed. It's a little funny thing, isn't it? Jesus, when he hears the man's response, a request rather, to come down and heal his son, Jesus says, you know, you guys don't believe. Yeah? And then he tells the man to go and uh, his son's alive, and the man believed. Well, didn't the man, wasn't that like the opposite of what Jesus just complained about or criticized? This is kind of an odd bit of the story. Uh, so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that the hour, uh, that it was the hour, rather, when Jesus had said to him, your son is alive. And he himself believed. So the point of his follow-up question related to belief, okay? All about belief. And all his household. This was now the second sign Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. All right? So all that stuff is the story in Galilee, the return trip to Galilee. So if you want to understand the bit about the royal official, you have to go before that little title. That's the point, right? 
that title was in verse 46, beginning in verse 46. And we said, oh, you got to go back a couple of verses. Okay. And what does it say in those little verses as you begin the story? It says that the Galileans welcome Jesus back to Galilee, right? They want to acknowledge him as Messiah and so on. Why? Because of the signs and the miracles and the wonders. That's the setup, right? So then when the royal official comes and says, Sir, will you come and heal my, my child? He's at the point of death. And Jesus makes a comment about how you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. That comment makes sense because the first statement in the story is about how when Jesus came up to Galilee, people believed in him because they had seen the signs and wonders. And so he's now offering some commentary on that. You see, it's a very simple, it's a very simple thing, but I really mean this. We often miss very crucial points of stories, sometimes because we don't pay attention to where the beginning and the end of a story is, or we just miss it because our Bible has a little title and we just sort of start after the title. Okay, so we want to try to become better readers. It's never, you're not too old to become a better reader. I feel like every week I'm learning something about how to become a little better reader. All right, so we've got at least a little bit of a, of a setup. We still don't have a clue what the story means, <laughs> but we at least have some confidence of what the story is, what, the, what it's supposed to be about. Now we just have to do the easy thing of trying to understand how it all relates to one another. All right, so uh, for time's sake today, I'll ask a little fewer questions, and um, yeah, rather I'll ask some questions, but give a little less time for response just to get on with some of the what the text actually says or some answers, okay? Uh, so what's Jesus' point? That's the first question. What's his point? Uh, are the signs bad then? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Or is it that the signs are good, but the people are bad? They shouldn't be relying on these signs and wonders. Well, if your conclusion is that they shouldn't be relying on these signs and wonders, you have a very big problem. You know why? Because last week we spent 30 minutes talking about how belief comes in order for you to have eternal life, or rather you have to believe in order to have eternal life. And how did John tell you he expected you to come to believe? Through the signs and wonders. There are other signs Jesus did, but these, the ones in this book, the ones he's chosen to focus on, are intended to bring you to belief. That's the author himself saying that. At the end of the book, mind you, it's not as though he says that at the beginning and then maybe this story is an illustration of how he gets corrected in his understanding or something. I mean, that's his conclusion to the book. This story happens long before it. So I think it's probably not very safe as an interpretive conclusion to say, well, Jesus must mean this, that people shouldn't rely on signs and wonders to come to believe. That clearly can't be what he meant. But that then leaves the goal wide open. <laughs> uh, a penalty kick, you know, it's basically the goal wide open. 
There's really no equivalent like it, is there? I don't know, in football? Not even a half yard line is a goal wide open. It's one of the reasons I love American football. Uh, I don't know. So, a goal wide open. What, what does it mean? Like, what do you do with it? Um, well, I have at least a, a, a general sense. Number one, whatever the answer is, it's, it's meant to explain something about the very nature of belief. Because we've already concluded that's obviously what the story's about. Now, I'm a believer. I wasn't always a believer. I was a non-believer for many years and then came to believe. I'm very invested in this idea of what it means to believe. So I'd like to understand these things, and I'd rather not, you know, as I said last week, uh, none of us invented Christianity. We have to learn what Christianity is from these texts. And uh, I have some sobering news for you. Trying to understand sometimes what these things mean is not always fast and easy. Um, we make choices in life, do we not? Of how we're going to spend our time, what our mind's going to think about, and so on. And those are choices. We make the choice. Either things mean a lot to us, and we spend some time thinking about them, or ultimately they don't mean much to us, really. And we don't think much about them. <laughs> so, to uh, love the truth means ultimately to think a little bit about it and try to understand it, or by definition, we don't love it. So, uh, what does it mean? Well, I'm not the, uh, sort of the authority on this, but I have an idea. <laughs> uh, what does it mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean the signs are bad. We know what the signs are supposed to do. If you witness Jesus do a miracle, then that demonstrates that his power is not human in origin. Humans can't raise people from the dead. We can't heal blind people like this instantaneously and so on. So to, to watch him do these miracles was to demonstrate that the power of God was operating in this person. Now, I've never quite been in the presence of someone like that. Uh, it's hard to imagine. I would just go, eh. In fact, most people are convinced they would just go, eh. I mean, excuse me, they would believe rather than just go, eh. A lot of atheists say, well, if Jesus you know, came up, showed up you know, this Tuesday and did some miracles, I'd believe in him. And a part of me thinks, yeah, I can kind of relate to that, right? Um, so, uh, yeah. The man, of course, on this occasion, when he asked Jesus to do a miracle, if Jesus actually does the miracle, the man wouldn't know it, would he? The man's 20 miles from his kid. So if Jesus did the miracle, the man couldn't know it. Not, on the, not in the spot, anyway. Let's say Jesus said, look, here, here's, a, here's a, somebody that, uh, come over here, uh, Zechariah. Here's little Zechariah. Uh, you know, he was sick yesterday and nearly at the point of death, and I healed him. And listen to his story, and he tells his story. Would the man have... What would that have meant to you? I mean, uh, 
if your child is the one who's nearly dead. I mean, no father leaves his son dying unless he is truly convinced there is no hope apart from some miracle. But if your son has brain cancer and is dying, but someone else's son recovers, that, does that make everything hunky-dory then, does it? No. Jesus could have healed a thousand people. It wasn't the man's son. There was only one miracle, actually, that mattered to the man at that point. Only one. And on this occasion, due to the circumstances, there was no way for him to know it. For certain, anyway. Uh, so, uh, what does Jesus mean then? Unless you, by the way, he uses the plural. The old King James, you know, would have clarified this. Ye, except ye, in the plural. You, you people, you know, all of you. Unless you see signs and wonders, you refuse to believe. Actually, the man's going to be an illustration of the opposite of that, isn't he? He's going to come to believe without actually seeing the miracle happen under his nose. So Jesus isn't really rebuking the man. He's rebuking the people at large. He's, he sees a danger. And here is the danger. If you want to understand what it's saying about belief. Uh, this Tuesday, let's say Jesus shows up. And he does a miracle. He raises uh, someone from the dead, you know. And it's on CNN and Fox News, you know, so everyone can see it. <laughs> and a bunch of people come to believe. You come to believe, I don't know. And, uh, and then, um, you know, you, you, you start taking Christianity seriously. And you start sort of living as a Christian. And time goes on, you know, Jesus never, doesn't show up again. A year goes by. Two years go by, maybe your business tanks, maybe we go to war, international war, I don't know, really, really bad stuff, and you're like, uh, hello? Isn't he going to show up and do something? And then someday comes, and it's your son or your daughter who dies in a car wreck on a Tuesday night. you still going to believe? Or do you need Jesus to show up and raise him from the dead to keep believing? I think if we're honest, we start to put our finger a little bit on the pulse of what belief really is. Belief is ultimately trust. Belief has to actually get on with believing, you know. Believing is trust. It's the same thing. In Greek, there's no two different words for it. So, if we say we trust, if we believe, right? I was working on scaffolding uh, the last two months, uh, doing a deck project. Uh, just think I've decided I'm done with scaffolding for the rest of my life. But I was up, you know, we put up the scaffolding, got the scaffolding built, you know, constructed out behind the deck. It's like 15 feet up. And uh, so, 
uh, back in you know mid-June, I had to go off the, the deck and take my first step onto the scaffolding that we set up. All four feet are at different heights, you know, because it's got some concrete here and some grass and a hill. It's just so uh, in theory, it's level, <laughs> but I had to actually go over the, my deck and actually step onto the scaffolding. Now, how do you suppose I took that first step? You got one arm gripping with its life on the deck post here, and then I'm putting my right foot on the scaffolding because I'm not up. There was a time in my life I was on scaffolding a lot, but not. it's been a while. So I get out there and, you know, I get one foot on there, and then I put the other. Do you think I let go of that post? No. And then I start doing, you know, rocking it back and forth. Just testing it out because I don't yet actually fully believe it. I believe it in a way, I've got my foot there, but I'm sort of easing onto it with my trust, you see? But in order to screen the porch and do some work I had to do, at some point, this grip, I needed that hand. There was no way around it. At some point, I had to actually put my whole weight on the scaffolding. Belief ultimately means you have to get on with believing <laughs> and demanding yet another sign. I think you remember the story of the Passover in Egypt, the mistake the Israelites made. They got a sign. He, he parted the Red Sea and they all believed, but then they were low on food and then not many of them believed. <laughs> And then he did another miracle God did and provided them miraculous water and then miraculous food. And they believed again. They went a few more miles and something else happened and they stopped believing. You see, believing ultimately means you have to get on believing. You have to actually put your weight, all of it, and surrender. So... This man, uh, he of course does just that, does he not? Uh, it says that the father believed Christ's word. Uh, why did he believe? Well, first of all, before we get to that, what exactly is belief again? Here's a second thing belief is. Believing something's different from believing someone, isn't it? Putting my weight on the whole scaffolding is different from believing you. I believe all sorts of things about politicians and senators and so on. But do you believe the senator? That's different, isn't it? To believe someone is a different thing. It's deeply personal. And it's invested in their character and so on. On this occasion, it says the man believed his word. To believe Jesus' word was not just to believe something about Jesus. It was actually to believe his word. The thing he said was true, and the man could put his whole weight of his life upon it and let go of everything else. That is what belief is ultimately. In, if you want to believe in God, that's what belief is in God. Okay, uh, now, uh, 
the final thing, belief, uh, it, I'll get to why he does, why he believed, but uh, the final thing, belief accepts that the power is all from God, of course. I know that's sort of obvious. You have to let go of the post, so to speak. But sometimes people get confused on that. Uh, I've used the illustration I heard from someone else many times. I'll just repeat it very briefly. If the apostles had the theological insight to realize that Jesus dead in the grave is not going to save anybody, certainly not the world, and they uh, pulled on their beards and scratched their heads and thought, I've got an idea. We just need to believe. If we, all of us, get together, there's about 12 of us in the room, we just hold hands and we gather around the tomb and we just believe. If we can work up enough belief, we can raise him from the dead. Oh, that's, that's not how belief works. The apostles' belief didn't raise Jesus from the dead. It's not, our belief isn't a power that brings life to us in that sense. The power is all from God. It's God who does the raising to new life. It's not in our belief. Okay? It's the belief is what accepts the power any more than I'm the one holding up the scaffolding with my belief. <laughs> it's quite the reverse. The scaffolding's upholding me. So why did the Father believe? Why did the Father believe? Uh, what, well, there's two simple explanations. One, he actually had heard of Jesus' miracles, had he not? The only reason he was there and wasn't somewhere else is because when he heard Jesus had come back to Galilee and he had heard about all that he was doing, healing people, raising people from the dead, whatever, he came to Jesus and only to Jesus because since the man was a royal official, you know he didn't lack for money to fix the problem, right? Obviously that hadn't worked. Nothing had worked. He came to Jesus because of the miracles. There was a chance. That's one reason he came to believe. When Jesus said, go your way, your son's alive, had, the man, had Jesus just been anybody, he wouldn't have believed him, of course. But he had done enough signs to warrant the trust, at least the seed of trust, a little tiny germinated plant of trust. Didn't take much, just a little bit. He believed. Okay, the other reason I think he believed is because of what I'll call rational desperation. Some Christians are like, yeah, the atheists say, well, you believe just out of desperation, you know, it's just a big crutch. And I'm like, it's not just a crutch, are you kidding me? It's a ventilator. It's more than that. The question isn't whether humans need a crutch or a ventilator, uh, or whether that's a shame or something. The question is, is it rational? I have some news for you. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. There's nothing irrational about it, is it? We are going to die. The man's son was going to die, and he knew it. And that was a motive for belief, and it was rational. 
Now, if that was the end of the story, even I would be scratching my head a little bit as a fellow Christian. (laughs) But the next day when the guy arrived home, he did what many of us do as believers. He heard the son was alive, but he was like, I need a little more detail. His faith sought a little extra confirmation. There was nothing wrong with that. John's not telling you the story as a bad example. The man wanted to know the time. They said, well, it was about one o'clock. And he said, now that was the time. And when he told his family and the servants that story, they, had, of, co- they of course, hadn't talked to Jesus, had they? They all came to believe in Jesus. You know why? Because they looked eye to eye into the Father, and they knew he was telling the truth. They hadn't even interacted with Jesus, and they came to believe. You see? Because the truth is what brings us to believe. All right. Next week, a little history lesson on uh, this text and maybe on uh, how we got to definition wars, if we have time. And then the final week, we're going to talk about the uh, miracle of the wedding feast, where it tells us not about the nature of belief, but about the nature of truth. Okay, shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We pray for your blessing on all of us who've heard your word, that we might, in our uh, faith, that it might feed on the word and be brought to life and sustained by the word. Think of the words of Jesus to Peter. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith not fail. We pray that for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.